Man, Brandon, I got to tell you, this last like two weeks, this is my schedule. Wake up, work on The Exorcist. Work on The Exorcist (laughs) until I can't work on The Exorcist anymore. Then I'm watching Godfather 1. Then I'm watching Godfather 2. Then I'm watching The Exorcist TV show. Then I'm going to sleep. And it's like, repeat the next day. I got to tell you, my brain is not in quote unquote good shape. I have not yeah, I been, to say. I have not been quote unquote sleeping well. <laughs> Dude, me either. It's so funny you say that. I told you about how like I've uh, woken up screaming a couple of times because it was just like nightmares and stuff like that. Really? Where I had to dream somebody was standing over me multiple times. It's weird. I hate that. <laughs> yeah, me too. And so does everybody that's in my house. Like, Andy has just like, we're like, what the fuck is going on? Are you okay? And then also the dogs when I woke up screaming. There's also one night where there was a storm and I thought somebody was banging on our door and I freaked out. So I like got up and went to go check, but I was like, oh, it's thunder and lightning, which I don't know. It's been wild. So it's like, this has been so much fun to work on. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, let's wrap this episode up. <laughs> <laughs> well, lucky for you, you chose a whole month of spooky shit. Perfect. So I love it. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Wayback Recap. Today, we continue our conversation on The Exorcist. Just a reminder from where we left off. Chris and Reagan are stuck in this condo with a possessed Reagan. Meanwhile, Father Karras has left, has lost his mom and is dealing with his own shit. And he's about to be thrown into the deep end. Poor Father Karras. He really didn't need this. <laughs> like, it's already a bad time. He doesn't even know these people. Like, he just kind of gets roped in. I feel bad for Father Karras. So we're back at Georgetown University, where we're at, like, the college running track where Mr. Gray Sweatpants himself, Father Karras, is running. Inappropriate. (laughs) Don't tell me what to do. Don't kink shame me. uh, He's a priest. He can't fuck you, Patricia. Just say it. He's an actor. He can fuck me all he wants. (laughs) (laughs) In the bleachers is a man... In wearing, like, or looking exactly how I think all men looked in the 70s. He's unhappy. He's wearing contrasting brown plaid pants and jacket. A matching, also not matching brown hat, stupid glasses. Karis stops to catch his breath, and the man approaches and asks if he is Father Karis. But Damien is confused and asks if they know each other. The man introduces himself as homicide detective... William J. Kinderman. And he questions Father Karras about the death of director Berg Dennings, who remember died last episode at the bottom of the stairs outside Reagan's window. Mysteriously. Very mysterious. Kinderman thinks that Berg's death and the desecrations at the church might be linked. When Karras asks why, Kinderman confides in him that Burke was found at the bottom of the stairs with his head turned backwards, facing behind him. And while this is possible to suffer via a fall, it's highly unlikely. So Detective Kinderman's theory is that we have a witchcraft sort of death with a black mass sort of desecration at the church. 
Now, we've got a new vocabulary word here, so I want to just take a moment and explain things. Dr. Ken- or Dr. Detective Kinderman, when he says black mass, he is referring to the, ni- the 19th century definition, meaning a satanic ceremony meant to desecrate or mock the Catholic mask. Catholic mass. The novel spends a lot of time talking about black masses and about the church desecrations. And I am glad the movie doesn't dwell there for too long. As I kind of think it really dates the story, and I'm just glad we didn't spend too much time talking about it. May I ask why you think it dates the story? So, yeah, of course you can. A lot of this has to do with my opinions, okay? So, like, the Church of Satan, in my opinion, isn't an evil group. And in the 70s, the, the Church of Satan was seen as satanic. Those are two different things. Like, I don't know. I just think, like, when you say Black Mass, it makes me think of medieval times, like, where people were just trying to label a different people as other. So, like, I don't know. Gotcha. It just seems like a generic, silly term, in my opinion. There are some people who think Black Masses are evil and disgusting and all these things where in my mind it was just like people get drunk and had orgies what's so bad about that <laughs> like as long as everything was consensual mind your fucking business <laughs> but in, they would look at that as like these people are evil like i just think you know enjoying oral sex does not make you evil <laughs> so that's just my opinion though you know take that with a grain of salt you heard it here first po- folks <laughs> patricia is pro oral sex ding 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 Father Karras doesn't agree with Kinderman. The priest shuts the detective down right away, even after the detective basically asks Karras out to go to the movies with him. He's like, hey, do you like movies? We should go sometime. (laughs) Nice try. Flirting will get you everywhere, Detective Kinderman. At Karras' door, Kinderman finally gets to the point, and he asks if Karras thinks any of the priests on campus would do anything like this. But Karras laughs him off. He says, even if I did know someone ill enough to do that, I wouldn't tell you. Good call, Karis. Don't talk to the cops. Yeah, don't be a snitch, bro. Is back at the hospital, this time with a psychiatrist, who is explaining to Chris that they think Reagan has something called sonambular form possession. This sounded made up to me, so I did some half-assed Googling And I was able to find some medical literature discussing it. In this condition, a person is experiencing such intense guilt, depression, shame, some strong emotion, that they convince themselves that they're possessed by a demon. People suffering through this may see exorcism as a cure. But medical professionals would just see this as a placebo. Like, if they think they're possessed by a demon, perform an exorcism, and maybe they'll convince themselves into actually feeling better. Interesting. That is wild. Now, a lot of a lot of this conversation has changed. Like, psychiatry, mental health stuff has come a long way since 1973. Nowadays, people would look at something like this and associate it with dissociative personality disorder. But it's all, it's a, it's a controversial topic. As the doctor in the movie explains this, we see different clips of Reagan strapped to a bed where she rages. 
Her face is marked up with gashes and cuts. Her lips are dried and cracked. The doctors try to convince Chris to commit Reagan, but Chris refuses. The doctors recommend an exorcism as a sort of sh- as, as a sort of shock therapy. First of all, in the movie, so they, the doctors have to explain to Chris what an exorcism even is. Like that's how not part of the lexicon the word exorcism was, but also this shows us how how Chris is just not religious at all. Like she doesn't even know about this stuff. Furthermore, when the doctors recommend this to her, she laughs at them. She's like, this is nonsense. You all sound like fools. And she takes her, she checks Reagan out of the hospital and takes her home, takes her back to the condo in that, Georgetown. She does that Viola Davis gif, like where she just grabs her purse and walks out. <laughs> She's like, girl. Literally. She's <laughs> like, I'm so glad there's 12 doctors in this room who are telling me that their medical advice for my child is an exorcist. Cool. Get your shit. Let's go. Like, <laughs> it's done. We're can done I, here. Can I? Can I ask you, like, if you had a child, uh, which is like multiverse here, uh, if you had a child and the doctors told you your child might be possessed, do you do the same thing or you like kind of trust them? Um, that's a hard question, because number one, I do not trust doctors. Some of the stupidest (laughs) people I know in the world are doctors, guys. I'm not even kidding. Like the most the honestly the stupidest person i've ever met is a cancer doctor and that just terrifies me (laughs) so i don't really trust doctors (laughs) so number one i don't trust doctors number two i grew up incredibly religious and as such to this day i have several very very close friends to me who are religious professionals who make their living uh serving the church And so if I saw anything like that, I have four people in my phone right now where I'd be like, you need to get to Chicago immediately. And they would come. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, true. So I'm lucky (laughs) in that sense that A, I don't like doctors and B, I would jump to the priest right away. Uh, (laughs) So that's probably wrong. That's not good. Like, I should probably go to the doctor first. But I would be like Angela on The Exorcist. Like, I would recognize this and I would immediately be like, church, hey, church, hey, right, you, you, father, whatever. Yep, I need you to come to my house. (laughs) Are you talking about like the TV series Exorcist, Yeah, sorry, like the TV show, yeah. Okay, okay. So we see uh, Reagan and Chris uh, arrive back at the condo. Around the corner, Kinderman, Detective Kinderman, is investigating the still bloody stairs where Director Burke Dennings died. When Chris puts Reagan to bed, she finds a crucifix under Reagan's pillow. Meanwhile, Kinderman finds a small clump of clay at the bottom of the stairs. We jump back inside where Chris questions the household over who put the crucifix in Reagan's room. Remember, Chris is an atheist. She does not have any sort of religious paraphernalia in her house. A crucifix showing up is is from outside the house. So she's right to investigate and be mad. I would also have questions. But everybody in the household denies putting the crucifix there. Kinderman walks up to the top of the stairs and looks up to see the window attached to Chris's house. 
what we what we the audience know is Reagan's window. Detective Kinderman knocks on the condo door and Chris invites him in. Kinderman asks if Reagan remembered anything from the night Burke died. But Chris explains Reagan was sedated and wouldn't remember anything. Furthermore, you know, it doesn't make any sense that Burke would be in Reagan's room. She had he had no business being upstairs, so it doesn't make any sense. Now, the role of Detective Kinderman really follows that like cop trope where he is this sort of bumbling, too nice, too talkative cop who, while he like looks while he's pretending to not know anything, he knows exactly what happened. And he's just trying to talk the person into admitting it. I enjoy Detective Kinderman, but he is frustrating the shit out of Chris. Kinderman questions her about who else could have been in the house. Like, was she expecting a delivery? But Chris says Carl, house guy Carl, he handles all that stuff and she doesn't know. She gets Kinderman a second cup of coffee while the detective looks to the windowsill and sees a bunch of Reagan's art, including some clay sculptures with the same color of clay Kinderman found at the bottom of the stairs where uh, Brooke died. Not looking good, Reagan. Not looking good. Not good. Kinderman asks Chris to ask Reagan if she remembered Burke in her room that night. But Chris snaps. He's like, no, she's sedated, and there's no reason for Burke to be in her room. She's mad. But Kinderman cools her down immediately by asking for her autograph, telling her what a big fan he is of her work. Totally placated, Chris sees the detective out, who says he will come back when Reagan feels better. Yeah, first of all, Chris, get a lawyer. You should know this. You're rich. You're famous. Don't talk to this dude. Like, don't. Yeah, number one tip, listeners. Uh, first of all, the police have no reason to be in your home. Uh, don't bring them in there. <laughs> Second of all, don't talk to the police without your lawyer present, especially if you're a rich person. Like, this is just in yeah, your I've best interest. S- I've seen so many episodes of SVU, and that's exactly what they do. Like, I'm just saying. This is literally how 20 episodes of SVU start. <laughs> it is, though. I mean... <laughs> Chris is 100% right. Like, Burke should not have been in her room. Right. But, like, the implications of that seem so much worse that if he were in there, you know what I mean? Like, Huge even if degree. it weren't, like, a, wasn't, like, a mystical reason for him to be up there or whatever, if Burke was in her room, I would be furious, too. Exactly. Huge agree. Okay, everybody, deep breaths. We got a big scene coming up. The moment the detective leaves... There are crashes and bangs from Reagan's room. Chris races up the stairs while we hear Reagan begging someone to stop, while another voice demands she do it over and over again. Chris opens the door to see a space in chaos. Clothes and toys are floating and racing around the room, while on the bed, a possessed Reagan is stabbing herself in the genitals with a crucifix. Reagan is bloodied, and her face is broken out in cuts and scabs. Chris tries to take the crucifix away from the child, but the demon fights her. 
shoving Chris's face into her daughter's bloodied groin. Chris is able to stand, but the demon slaps her face, throwing her across the room. On the ground, a giant wardrobe slides to hit Chris, but she's able to dodge it. The door is slammed, keeping the others out, before the demon looks to Chris and speaks with Burke Denning's voice, saying, Do you know what she did, your cunting daughter? Hearing Burke's voice terrifies Chris, and she bellows out in fear. While shooting the scene where Chris gets slapped and flung across the room, Freakin convinced Ellen Burstyn to perform the stunt herself. She agreed, but after several takes, it wasn't working. It didn't look real enough to Freakin. So on the last take, the director gave orders to the people holding the rope that would pull Ellen across the room to pull as hard as they could. And they did, injuring Ellen's back severely. The take where Ellen is actually injured is the take freaking used in the film. What a dick. It's just wild to I, me. Like, and there are interviews with Ellen, you know, like years and years later, there's interviews with Ellen Burson where she's telling this story. And so while Ellen was not as injured as severely as Linda Blair, Ellen's back was also, she had issues with her back for years and years. Despite this, when she's talking about William Friedkin, Ellen talks about him with total reverence, like that he was so a genius, like, oh, was I hurt? Sure. Did he lie to me? Sure. But he's such a genius. Like that, what? that's wild to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be very upset someone lying to me and hurting me. I don't care if I got an Oscar nom, an Oscar or whatever the fuck came out of it, like, Bro, that's fucked up. Totally agree. That's very fucked up. Totally agree. And I feel like today it just wouldn't even happen. I mean, you'd hope that, but God only knows. Yeah, I was going to say, who knows? It probably would, and then same shit would happen. A sunny morning, we see Father Karras walking, coming upon Chris, who at first thinks he's a fan because, because Father Karras is not wearing his like priest outfit, his clerics. The two talk. Chris asks how a priest, be how a shrink became a priest, but Karis explains it's actually the other way around. He was a priest, and the church sent him to medical school. You know, Harvard, John Hawkins, just the best medical schools in the country. Just like, hmm, damn, Father Karis, Harvard, huh? Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, right. <laughs> Feels like just a had lie, that money. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Chris asks if their mutual friend, Father Dyer, had mentioned anything to Karis about her. And Karis is like, no. And he's like, oh, he didn't mention anything about my daughter? And Karis says no. Eventually, Chris asks Karis, Father Karis, how, how would one go about getting an exorcism? Karis is taken aback, and he explains, he's like, well... Exorcism, exorcisms don't really happen anymore. You know, ever since the conversation around mental illness has been explored, you know, mental illness is something that should be handled by a doctor, not a priest. But Chris kind of shakes him off and she's like, no, I think my daughter, first of all, the line is, I think my daughter is probably possessed. Uh, Chris, I think we can take the probably out of there. <laughs> like, I think yeah, it's girl. safe to say your daughter is indeed possessed. 
that voice and all the shit flying kind of really seals the deal on this. Yeah. Chris was probably like, damn, man, I also hopped up on morphine and all kinds of other shit. I don't even know what happened, really. What was the drug of choice? The drug du jour of the 70s? Oh, I think it was like quaaludes, ups, uppers, downers. <laughs> <laughs> uppers, downers. Chris was doing them all. I would, shit. If my kids possess, I'm doing all the drugs. First of all, I'm doing, I'm doing all the drugs at the best of times. <laughs> Never mind at the worst of times. I am definitely going to be getting whatever. I'm a rich white lady. I'm getting the best drugs I can to deal with my possessed daughter that no one will help me with. <laughs> Jesus. That's so scary. Karis tries to talk her out of it, but Chris cries. You know, she does. she's at her wit's end. It's her daughter. You have to help me, Father Karis. But Karis explains that this is not a good idea. He's like, first of all, exorcisms take time. You have to gather proof. You have to conduct an investigation in order for the church to even decide if an exorcism can take place. And in that time, Reagan could get much worse. When Karis offers to see Reagan as a psychiatrist, Chris cries out. She doesn't need to see any more goddamn doctors. She needs a priest. At the condo, Chris sees Karis upstairs, where we hear the demon growling. Karis goes inside and sees Reagan. The once adorable child is now scabbed and covered in scars, strapped to a bed with a feeding tube up her nose. Her once frilly nightgown now covered in a green goo that perfectly match her sickly green eyes. Karis speaks and the demon answers in a voice that is totally other to the little girl. The demon wants the straps removed, but Karis tells Reagan that they can't undo the straps as they're worried she'll hurt herself. The demon introduces himself as the devil, and when Karis challenges the devil to undo the straps themselves, the demon answers, that would be much too vulgar a display of power. Karis asks where Reagan is, and the demon answers. She is here with us. It's the us. I, it's the with us that makes me so upset. <laughs> yeah, I see one of you. What You can't be saying us, bruh. Not good. Karis challenges him, but the voice answers, and it's the voice of the man Karis saw on the subway. But then the demon voice comes back and tells Karis that Karis's mother is in there with them. Karis says, oh yeah? If that's true, then you must know my mother's maiden name. The demon answers that challenge by vomiting into Father Karis's face. <clears throat> when filming this scene, director William Friedkin told Jason Miller that he would be hit in the chest with the vomit, which is actually Campbell's split pea soup. However, Franken actually had the vomit hit the actor in the face, which infuriated Miller, who almost came to blows with Friedkin over it. Yeah, I would too. I'm just saying, cold Campbell's soup, even if it was warm, no, like that yeah, would be absolutely it, fucking disgusting. I'm not sure if it being warm makes it better. I think it being warm actually makes it worse, because then it would feel like actual vomit, but it's not cool. Like, it's the lying. 
And I get Friedkin is doing this because he wants a raw reaction from the actor, right? But he's an actor. He doesn't need that. Like, he's already in that place. Like, it's stupid. And I think it just pulls. Yeah, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. It's so gross. Like, I can't eat split pea soup because the way it looks, it's just like, ugh. Um, I used to love split pea soup, but I worry after this last month, I'm off it. (laughs) I think. (laughs) I don't. I think I've done this to myself. I used to make my own vomit in middle school to get out of like tests and stuff like that. And I would keep it in a Tupperware case. Um, it would contain Campbell's <laughs> vegetable soup, Sprite, um, and a couple other thickeners and stuff like that. And I would just go get my locker, pull that shit out, make a little noise and throw it <laughs> on the ground and get right out of class. It was really, really smart of you to include the Sprite because that makes it Thank bubbly you. and frothy, which is what vomit is. You're smart. Yeah, bro. Thank you. I I spent a lot of time figuring out ways not to learn stuff than actually learning stuff. So. Which I love. Same. So smart to have it on hand. I would just make myself throw up. I would just shove my fingers <laughs> down my throat. <laughs> you know, I like my teeth, so I was like, I'm not no, going to be doing smart. all that. Yeah. Good call. In the basement, Chris is washing Karis's sweater while Father Karis looks around the basement at Reagan's art. Karis tells Chris that he is still nervous about moving forward with the exorcist, with the exorcism. He tells Chris that there are things the church will look for in order to prove possession, like speaking in another language she couldn't know, stuff like that. He knows there are other symptoms, but he'll have to look them up. Like, no, nowadays, oh, Chris makes fun of me. Chris is like, oh, aren't you an expert on this? And Father Cares is like, no, nobody's an expert on possession. This isn't a thing that the church deals with, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, the Chris, idea of someone speaking in another language is absolutely, f- like, that they don't know whatsoever, especially a child, like, say, speaking in Latin all of a sudden, I would be terrified of that. Yeah, I mean, that gets me more than the displays of strength and stuff, because I know, <sighs> we'll talk about this later in the episode, but... I know that sometimes a person can display sh- strength that we didn't know they had. So, like, the displays of strength don't convince me as much. But the 12-year-old girl from Los Angeles who suddenly starts speaking in fluent Latin, um, that makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Father Karras sees that Chris is at the end of her rope, but he says that what he thinks would be best for Reagan is six months under observation at the best hospital Chris can find. But Chris answers that she is a mother and she knows that that thing upstairs is not her daughter. She is furious that Karis won't do the exorcism. Before he leaves, Father Karis asks Chris if Reagan knew a priest was coming. Chris says no. Did Reagan know that my mother recently died? Chris says no. Karis leaves, and from the street in a parked car, Detective Kinderman watches. We see Father Karis performing Mass. And in this moment, we're supposed to understand that Father Karis has come to the conclusion that he will help Reagan. Because the next scene, he's back in Reagan's bedroom. He's got his clerics on. He's seemingly preparing for something. The demon says, What a nice day for an exorcism. 
Karis answers, would you like that? Intensely. Karis asks, but won't that drive you out of Reagan? It would bring us together. You and Reagan? You and us. The us again. It's the us. I don't. <laughs> yeah, please stop referring to yourself as multiple entities because that freaks me out. Very upsetting. We had a good thing going. Like we were talking. Like you said hi. <laughs> I said hi. But then you had to refer to the us again, and now I'm off. But so speaking hypothetically again, your hypothetical child, uh, PJ Patricia Jr. <laughs> is possessed. Do you want to be in the room? during the exorcism or are you like I'm staying as far away as possible or are you like I need to be here so my instinct is that I would like to be there. like I want to be there I want to, I need to be there in the room I need to be there as a source of comfort for my daughter who I do believe is still there like even though there's this thing like that's my baby however I would defer to the priest like if the priest told me that I needed to be out of the room I would get out of the room but it would be very hard for me because I would want to be close by. What about you? Woof. Um, very good question. Preferably not in the room. I would have like a camera set up, but That's smart. I guess I would also be in there. I don't know. I think it's hard for me to say because I don't have children, so I'm not attached Same. to them. But it would be totally fucking scary to have to be in there to witness everything, to see like what is in your child's body or whatever you know mm-hmm. what i mean that's like taken over that would be too much for me agreed i also don't know like at this point in the movie if i were chris i'm not sure if i have 100 percent faith in father karis like first of all karis is already doubting the exorcism like we've already talked about all of his doubts he has a lot of doubts but later when the exorcist shows up i would be like oh this fucker knows what he's doing but <laughs> we're getting ahead of ourselves again. This old bitch. This old bitch, exactly. Father Karis sits, and the drawer next to the bed opens on its own. Karis asks if the demon did that, and then commands the demon to do it again, but the demon refuses before speaking in Latin. Karis begins recording the, recording the session between the two, and answers back in Latin. But now the demon switches to French. The demon refuses to leave before Father Karis brings out a small bottle of water. The demon asks Karis what it is, and Father Karis explains that it's holy water before he sprinkles Reagan with it. The demon is scared of the holy water and says, It burns! Squirming on the bed, the demon speaks in tongues and Father Karras brings the microphone close in order to record it. He asks the demon, he asks after the demons, but there's no response that can be understood. Karras comes downstairs and overhears Chris on the phone, placating someone who's asking how she's doing. Karras sits and the pair share a drink. (laughs) (laughs) Rightfully so. I mean, if if I had to deal with a demon, I would also like a drink afterwards, please. Karis asks where Reagan's father is, and Chris says he's in Europe. Chris hasn't told him anything about what's going on with Reagan. Karis shows Chris the water that he used on Reagan, but it isn't holy water. It's just tap water, which leads Father Karis to think that Reagan might be faking. 
at this, hmm. when he says this, Chris tells Karis that Chris thinks Reagan killed Burke Dennings by pushing him out of her window. Okay, so in like five minutes, we have learned a lot about what's happening, so let's do a quick recap. Reagan knows that uh, Mother Karis has recently died. Reagan is also speaking with at least some small understanding of Latin and French. Reagan has some understandings of the effects of holy water, like what holy, how holy water would affect an evil creature. Again, Reagan has not been brought up in any sort of religious household. It is not likely that she would have this knowledge. We see the demon is happy to see Karis, saying that the demon has been waiting for us all to be together. Furthermore, Chris has not told Reagan's father about anything going on with Reagan. Furthermore, Chris believes that in the 10 minutes between Sharon leaving the house and Chris coming home, that Reagan pushed Burke Dennings out of her window with enough force to spin Burke's head 180 degrees. Jesus. Brandon, what do we think? Wow. Uh, I think I need a drink as well because that shit's wild. Um, I think that like also she's possessed, bro. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like she's speaking <laughs> French and Latin. Yeah. Like, yeah, you may have used tap water. Maybe she's fucking with you. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I'm guessing. And the fact that a young child may have pushed a man out the window and completely turned his head around like i don't think a 12 year old normal one could do that just just my opinion totally agree like the react like the holy water thing is an issue absolutely but at the same like all the other things way like reagan having knowledge she couldn't possibly have reagan speaking a language she couldn't possibly know like those things matter much more to me than a child overreacting to holy water or to not holy water, I guess. Like, that is a little thing compared to what, in my opinion, is all these big things. Yeah. Furthermore, I am also taking huge issue with the fact that Re that Chris has not told Reagan's father about what's <laughs> going on with Reagan. Like, if he wanted to know, he could call. Oh, I mean, that's an excellent follow-up point, Brandon. That's true. But I just think, like, oh, here's a point. Like, it's the 70s, right? I'm surprised that the doctors at the psychiatric hospital didn't reach out to Reagan's father after Chris refused to commit Reagan. Yeah. Like, Needs I guess the that's how... permission. Right, exactly. So I guess that's how removed Reagan's father is. The relationship between Reagan and her father is discussed a lot more in the novel than it is in the movie, where her father is a is a non-existent person in the movie. He isn't much more present in the novel, but in the novel we learn that Reagan feels a lot of responsibility for her parents' divorce. Like, she thinks it's her fault. And so that when we think back to that possession disorder that the doctors thought she might have, like, Reagan is having a very strong feeling of guilt over her parents' divorce. So there's some legitimacy there, in my opinion. In the sound lab on campus, Father Karras listens to the tape he recorded in Reagan's bedroom. 
His colleague confirms that she is speaking English, she's just speaking English backwards. He reverses the tape, and we hear several different voices. Nope. One that says, give us time, while another voice says, let her die. Listening over and over again in his room, Father Karras hears even more voices. I am no one. Fear the priest. Marin! Marin! The phone rings, and Karras rushes to the condo. He's met by housekeeper, personal assistant, babysitter Sharon, who has stuck it out through all of this. God bless Sharon. Truly. Without Chris, Sharon leads Father Karras into Reagan's room. The icy air shows their breath before Sharon shows Father Karras Reagan's abdomen, where the words, help me, have lifted out of Reagan's skin. This display is enough to convince Father Karras to meet with the bishop and present the case. The bishop questions Karras if he believes this is a possession. And Father Karras says he isn't sure. But we can't deny that Reagan has met the requirements for the ritual. The bishop agrees and says they need to find a second priest to be the actual exorcist because Father Karras doesn't have the experience required. Good news. Father Marin just has been back from Iraq for a couple months. While the bishop is nervous about Father Marin's health, they can't dispute that he's the only person who has actual exorcism experience. We see Father Marin walking through picturesque woods when he receives a telegram from the bishop. We have a close-up on the demon face. Poor Reagan. Like, the demon makeup they put on Linda Blair is so scary. It's the, the green eyes creep me out so much. So we see a close-up on the demon, but then that fades, and we see the iconic shot of Father Marin under the street lamp in front of the condo. The exorcist has arrived. Father Marin greets Chris, and the moment after he steps into the house, the demon bellows from upstairs. Marin! Karis shakes hands with Father Marin, who asks Karis to go to the church and get some church priest stuff before coming, but, but then come right back. Father Karis is a little confused and asks Father Marin if he wants to hear the background on the case, but Father Marin doesn't need to hear any of the details. He already knows what must be done. Church stuff acquired, Father Karis and Father Marin suit up while Father Marin gives Father Karis exorcism do's and don'ts. <laughs> Here's a quick little exorcism 101. I don't feel like Father Karras is being appropriately prepared for the situation that he's about to participate in. Like, I feel like this is like, I don't know, a pharmacist being asked to perform surgery. Like, it doesn't feel like Karras should be here. That's just my opinion. <laughs> yeah, like, can I have like an orientation before we do this, bro? Like... I guess, but I guess the best way to learn is getting thrown right into it. I don't know. That's a great point. Uh, Father Marin tells Father Karras to avoid conversations with the demon. The demon is a liar and wants to confuse us. He's going to attack us with lies. Do not listen. Father Karras wants to give Father Marin some background. He says, you know, there's three spirits, but Marin interrupts him. He says, there is only one. Making us think, like, this is the devil. Like, this is capital D devil. 
Walking up to the bedroom, we hear terrible noises coming from the room. Marin approaches the bedside table and lays out his crucifix and holy water. The demon invites Father Marin to... Stick your cock up her ass, you motherfucking cocksucker! Father Marin flicks holy water and commands the demon to be silent. Marin begins to pray. He immediately gets hit with some vomit, but he continues. The demon twists and turns on the bed, moaning. The room gets colder and colder as the demon sets their sights on Karis. Your mother sucks cocks in hell! The prayers continue. The demon begins to shake and lift the bed off the ground. The priests take a breath and the bed begins to levitate, three feet straight off the ground. Father Karis stops praying, watching in horror and awe, but Father Marin snaps at him and they begin to pray again, after which the bed lowers back to the ground. Father Marin lays hands on, on Reagan and the demon leaks vomit and pus, it's terrible. The room shakes. The demon laughs at the priest's feeble attempts. Father Marin coughs but gathers himself before invoking Christ to cast the spirit out. Father Karras watches as the foundation of the house begins to crack, but Father Maris is non-pulsed. Marin anoints Reagan, and the demon reacts, spinning Reagan's head 360 degrees shocking Father Karis and stopping the prayers momentarily. But when when Karis joins back in, the it affects the demon even more so, and the entire foundation of the condo begins to crack and shift and shake. The demon screams at Karis. You killed your mother. You left your mother to die. Karis calls the demon a bastard, and the demon rips its bindings, levitating Reagan six feet off the bed. Father Marin throws holy water on on Reagan, and he and Karis continue to pray. They say, the power of Christ compels you. Over and over again, they say it. Eventually, Reagan lowers back to the bed. Father Karis goes to strap her back in, but the demon kicks at Karis. The foundation shakes again and throws the priest to the ground. In shadow, we see outline of Reagan kneeling before the giant demon statue that Marin saw in Iraq. The demon squeals and moans before falling back. The priests pray, but Karis is shaken and hurt. The room quiets and the demon stills. Marin tells them to rest before trying again. The priests sit on the stairs and rest, clearly tired and raw. Father Marin excuses himself to the bathroom, where we see the old priest with shaking hands reaching again for those mysterious pills. I think they're nitroglycerin. I bet you're right. He seems to have a bad heart. Alone, Father Karras goes back into the bedroom and stares at the bed. Where Reagan should be, Karis sees his mother, before looking again and seeing Reagan, who is also in terrible shape. The demon speaks out, but with Karis's mother's voice. Dimmy, 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 help me, Dimmy. 
Harris checks Reagan's heart rate and is concerned about her medical health. He wants them to stop. But the, dev- the demon continues to taunt him. This time he speaks in Greek at Father Karras, but Father Karras screams back. Marin tells Karras to get out, which the younger priest does. Alone with Reagan, Father Marin taps some holy water out on her again, seemingly waking the demon as he begins to pray. Downstairs, Father Karras is a wreck. Chris sees him and asks if it's over, but Karras shakes his head. Chris asks if Reagan is going to die, but Father Karras says no, seemingly hyping himself up to go back upstairs. The doorbell rings, and it's goddamn Detective Kinderman. <laughs> this is not a good time, sir. Honestly. In the bedroom, Father Karras discovers that Father Marin is collapsed on the bed, and the demon is sitting up in a corner, not where it should be, not strapped in. Father Karras goes to Father Marin, but we can see that Marin is dead. Karras works to revive Father Marin while the demon watches, giggling. With no response from Marin, Karras attacks the demon. While choking Reagan, Karras demands the demon take him. He says, take me, leave the girl. And the demon does. We hear Reagan for the first time in 40 minutes, crying as the face on Father Karras shifts, the demon beginning to take hold of the priest. In the last moment he's there, Father Karras throws himself out of Reagan's window, falling to his death just like Burke Dennings did. Hearing the crash and her daughter's voice, Chris and Detective Kinderman run to the bedroom, while a crowd gathers outside at the bottom of the stairs next to Karis's body. Mother and daughter reunite, while Kinderman looks to the body of, of Father Marin. Outside, Father Dyer arrives and offers last confession to his friend, Father Karras. Karras can't speak, but he holds Father Dyer's hands while Dyer gives Damien his last rite, his last rites, while he dies in his friend's arms. Father Dyer was played by Father William O'Malley, who also served as the film's technical advisor. Father O'Malley had never been in a movie and didn't make another one after this. But he did, however, do some acting and directing in his spare time. This last scene was very difficult for Father O'Malley. And he just, he couldn't give director William Friedkin the take that he wanted. So the director slapped the priest hard across the face before recording another take. This was the take used in the film. I would have (laughs) choked the shit out of William Friedkin. Can you imagine, like, okay, you're on set. It's a heavy scene. You're on location. There's people all around. And and the director walks up to the priest and slaps the shit out of the priest. And then yells, action? Like, that's wild. Yeah, the action he will get was his ass whooped. That's what I'll tell you. I'm saying, this collar doesn't stop me from beating the fuck out of you, dick. <laughs> We next see a bright afternoon. 
the stairs are clean again, and we watch as the condo is getting packed up. Chris and Reagan are leaving. Sharon gives the St. Joseph's pendant that she found on the bedroom floor to Chris. Outside, Father Dyer waits as Chris loads up the car. Chris tells Father Dyer that Reagan doesn't remember anything about her experience. Just before Reagan herself shows up. And while she's a little banged up, Reagan looks pretty good considering what she's been through. Chris thanks Dyer for his help, and Reagan gives him a hug and kiss on the cheek. They get in the car and drive away before stopping quickly, where Chris gives Father Dyer the St. Joseph's pendant. With one last look at the stairs, the exorcist ends. I don't know if that's what she tells. Um, what is the significance of the St. Joseph pendant? I mean, you are more religious than I am. I didn't really pay attention in church when I was there all the time. But, oh. like, who's St. Joseph? <laughs> me either. But the internet told me that he's, like, the patron saint of children. Oh. And in the movie, it matters because the, the pendant was found by Father Marin at the same time that he found that statue of the demon. Interesting. So... Like, Father Marin had it, and then somehow Father Carrot... Like, it's a whole thing. I don't know. There's some... Pl- there's some... Let's talk about some plot holes in The Exorcist now, here <laughs> at the end. So, like, first of all, something that I did not realize until I started looking at this very intensely, and especially, I think the book helps make this much more clear. The reason Reagan slash the demon killed Burke Dennings is because Burke Dennings had been molesting Reagan. Whoa. That he he was showing up at the house all the time. He was drunk all the time. He There was that moment at the end of the party where Burke looked like he wanted to tell Chris something. Is that was made, like, that might have been a moment where Burke wanted to confess. Where Reagan... And Chris were having the conversation about their birthday, and Reagan said that Chris could invite Mr. Dennings. That maybe Burke had told Reagan that, like, I'm going to be your new dad. Like, that there was some sort of inappropriate relationship going on between Reagan and Burke. And that's why the demon slash Reagan killed him. I did not realize that. Like, that was not laid down thick enough for me to perceive as a viewer. (laughs) Yeah, me either. Like, I thought he was just killed because he was there. I mean, I assumed, like, when Chris kept saying, like, he shouldn't be in her room, blah, 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 that. Yeah. Like, that was kind of creepy to me. Like, yeah, you definitely should not be in her room. Agreed. Agreed. And so then again, while reading the book, like, Detective Kinderman... Like, I feel like he showed up at Chris's house already suspecting Reagan. That's why the detective showed up. And then when he found that clay in the kitchen, that pretty much cemented it for Detective Kinderman. Like, I think he showed up that con- at the condo that night to basically, like, move forward with that lead. Like, maybe not to arrest Reagan, but to escalate things. Because the detective knew that Reagan was responsible for Burke Denning's death. Interesting. So, like, his suspect was a 12-year-old. I wonder how he would have, like... <laughs> Who was allegedly sedated. 
(laughs) of which there was no witnesses to the crime. Furthermore, it would be perceived that a 12-year-old girl would not have the strength to attack a full-grown man and push him out of a window. So I don't know if his uh, case had any legs, but I think that's why he was there. I mean, his case definitely didn't have legs. (laughs) Like, if I was a juror and I heard this, I'd be like, okay. Oh, so you're telling me Sandra Bullock's perfect, beautiful 12-year-old daughter killed a director? Mm, I don't know. I don't think so, sir. For a hot second, I was like, Sandra Bullock's in this movie? <laughs> I just met, but, I just used her as an example of like a super famous, loved actress. Which is no, who no, Chris I get is supposed it. to be. I think uh, I have a soft spot for Detective Kinderman because he's sort of the main character of Exorcist 3, which I have just recently viewed as well. I'm telling you, there's been so much exorcism in my life. Like, there needs to be no more exorcism. Like, I need to put this shit to bed. I can't... <laughs> Have you read the book of Exorcist 3? I have not. I have not read uh, William Peter Blatty's sequel, Legion. Legion. I think it's supposed to be pretty good, but I know it wasn't as well received as that. So, dear listeners, you might be thinking, you know, exorcisms, this sounds like an old-timey problem, like Middle Ages, or at the very least, a 1970s problem. And that would be a fair assessment. The 1970s were a pop in time for exorcisms. However, as, we'll, as we will discuss in a moment, if the last five years have taught us anything, it's that ignorant people frequently choose to believe the unbelievable. Right at the top, let's discuss official church stance. As we mentioned earlier, before the Catholic Church will approve an exorcism, several measures must be met. A change in behavior or voice, knowledge of a language or a place that is unknown to the person, Cutting, scratching, biting, levitation, etc. The Catholic Church revised the rite, which is like the prayer of exorcism, in 1999. And just last year, a Vatican-sponsored exorcism conference was held in Rome and was attended by 250 priests from 51 different countries. Last year. What is an exorcism conference consist of? Are there like booze with like holy water? Exactly, like questions. best practices. Do you get a t-shirt that says like Vatican Exorcism Conference 2022? Is, are there swag bags? Did they get lanyards? I have a million I questions. <laughs> I would have 100% went. Like not even joking, I would have went. My instinct is to assume that Vatican sponsored conferences are just like orgies between men and children i know that's not true but that's where my brain goes right away but if it's an exercise no that these are great questions brandon like is there a booth where you can get uh vomit proof like (laughs) clothes is there a place that serves like a bomb to help people whose skin has broken out and like who knows i don't know i would love to be able to go headphones from the lies that they tell you know i mean like there are things I want to be clear. I would not attend if it was a, between orgies and, you know, like that's not what I'm there for. I'm there to no, get the no. swag bags and figure out what the fuck an exorcist orgy is. He's or right. yeah, exorcist, <laughs> <laughs> exorcist conference is. I agree. I agree. I do think that if Brandon or I, like, even tr- got close to the Vatican, we would start bursting into flames. Like, they would not let us on premises. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, 
a mouthy woman and a gay black, they're not letting us nope, anywhere near that conference. They're not into us at all, which is fine. I'm also not a huge fan of theirs. I feel like what would be really funny if we went in like a trench coat where I'm on your shoulders oh or vice my versa. Gosh, yeah, three like kids in a trench like, coat. Love that. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to let you in first because even as a black, you are a man and therefore better than me inherently. So thank you. <laughs> we'll have you be the top and I'll be the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> better yet, three pre- three people in a trench coat, you, me, and my dog Bernadette will make Bernadette the head. No one will even be worried. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Or she could be the arms. I feel like she should be the <laughs> Her little teeny tiny dog arms. It would be so cute. So as I teased earlier, as a source for this part of the episode, I reached out to friend of the podcast, Mother Amy, who is an Episcopal priest and has been one for over 15 years. Does that blow your mind, Brandon? Yeah. Do you remember when Amy was not a priest? (laughs) Because I remember when Amy was not a priest. I mean, yes. So Amy's a dear, dear friend. I reached out to her because I like, you know, I want to make sure I'm giving good information to our beloved listeners. And while Amy has never participated in an exorcism, nor does she know any ordained person who has, she did say that both she and the church are open to the possibility of possession, but only under strict parameters that we'll go into more in a little bit. She and the Episcopal Church, now first first of all, the Episcopal Church and the Catholic Church are two different things. Sometimes people call the Episcopal Church Catholic light. Like, we splintered off of the Catholic Church when people wanted to get divorced in the 1600s. No big deal. Um, Episcopalians are pretty loosey-goosey, especially compared to the Catholics. Like, we have a much softer uh, approach to life in general, but especially when it comes to, like, heaven, hell, demons and stuff, like... The Episcopal Church kind of throws their hands up and is like, easy, easy, easy. We'll take some of this. <laughs> yeah. Like in between yeah. gin tonics. You know what I mean? That's why I joined it. Despite this kind of loosey-goosey feeling, the Episcopal Church goes over the rite of exorcism every three years at their general convention, which is where Episcopalians make all of the rules up about their church. Every three years, they visit that right to make sure the wording is appropriate, to make sure if someone were to approach the church for an exorcism, that they would have some procedure to follow in that circumstance. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, I would like to be a part of that. To just be <laughs> sitting in the room to like, now do you demon? Uh <laughs> Like, I really want to be a part of that. That'd be one part of the thing that I would actually thoroughly enjoy. So these three paragraphs, which are all the Episcopalians, which is the Episcopal Church's three paragraphs on exorcism. In these three paragraphs, it basically says that should a person ask for an exorcism, that exorcism would have to be performed by the bishop, which is the like a local church head. There's lots of bishops governed by one great big bishop. But it would be up to the bishop to decide if that person qualified for an exorcism. And it would be up to that bishop to write and perform said exorcism. Which I thought was interesting. So, like, if I wanted to go to Amy for an exorcism, nope, it would go to her boss, the bishop. So I thought that was neat. Interesting. Furthermore, there's no, like, a the Catholic Church has a script written, like, a how to exercise. 
The Episcopal Church does not have that. It would be up to each bishop to kind of decide the language and steps they would go through in order to perform an exorcism. I think this has most to do with the fact that the Episcopal Church and the Catholic Church, when a person asks for an exorcism, the church will only consider it if every other possible explanation has been, like, overruled. Like, every medical option has to be extinguished. Every uh, psychological aspect has to be evaluated. The Episcopal Church will then only perform an exorcism as, like, a as a hope to provide that person comfort. So where in the movie we see, you know, Catholic power, Christ compels you and shit, the Episcopal Church isn't going to do that. They're going to offer prayers of healing. Like, we're not even going to acknowledge the demon in the Episcopal version of exorcism. We just seek out healing, which I thought was interesting. Interesting, interesting. I want the crazy stuff, personally. (laughs) I want the holy water. Yeah. I want... The full-on exorcist movie level of exorcist, because, I mean, prayers of healing sound great, but I want you to make that motherfucker sorry it possessed my body. Huge agree. I would like a little column A, a little column B. Let's make this a group effort. Get everybody in the room. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't that kind of the same method that, like, not that this is canon, um, the nuns in the exorcist TV show use is, like, love and healing? Yep. Exactly like that. That makes sense. Very recently, a priest was attacked in California, and the only way the attacker would relent is when the priest invoked the name of Jesus Christ. So that's a thing that happened. You can look that shit up. It's news. Did she die? No, she was just hurt. Okay, good. I mean, not good. That's terrible all around, but I just was very confused. Yeah. That's interesting. Wow. Right? That's wild. I know it. Speaking of the big JC... In the Gospel of Mark, in the Bible, Jesus Christ is able to expel demons with a simple command. That as the anointed one, he is able to expel evil. Which again, under, like help gives us some context to understand why that was the prayer that Marin and Karis used on Reagan. I only bring up the Bible and Jesus Christ because... In the Bible, which is a book written by men... The character of Jesus Christ <laughs> doesn't do a lot. Like, he he is only there for a little chunk of the Bible. Like, he's not the main character. But in, in the tellings of Jesus Christ, we do get these exorcism moments even then. So if we're only including five things about Jesus, and one of the things we're going to include is that he did exorcise demons, that matters to me. Like, it was worth talking about when we only talked about a couple things. So I do think that's interesting. Yeah. And I know in the movie Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, uh, the power used to kind of like stop demons from entering places and things like that, Jada Pinkett Smith and I forget the other character, they have like a key that contains the blood of Jesus in it. And like that blood, it's what stops demons from like entering places and doing other things and is very dangerous to demons. Interesting. Again, a movie, not real life. (laughs) And I mean, we haven't really talked about it too much, but exorcisms, there are stories of evil forces taking possession of people from every culture of people that has walked the earth. So this is not a Christian alone 
uh, belief or story or whatever, a legend, like you see tales of possession from ancient China, from ancient Egypt, from um, tribes in South America, people around the world have always talked, like exorcism has always been there, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. Like, why? There's got to be something to that. Like, I don't want to, like, say, yep, that's proof of demons or something like that. You know what I mean? But, yeah. like, for every culture, same thing with dragons. Yeah. I think there were yeah. dragons. I also think there were dragons. Um, Back to exorcism for just a minute. And this is something that Amy talked about as uh, something that has been compulsory for the church, especially within the last 50 years, is that, unfortunately people didn't know how to explain illness, let alone mental illness in time in, you know, pre-modern times. So was a person possessed by an evil spirit or were they schizophrenic? And ancient China didn't have a word for schizophrenic. So they called them possessed. Do you know what I mean? So as much as my inner, (laughs) I want to believe, like I do want to believe but at the same time, like, people have epilepsy. We'll get into it. The exorcism that inspired William Peter Blatty was an exorcism recorded by Raymond J. Bishop, performed by Father William Holleran. Is it interesting that the priest who performed this exorcism was named Holleran? which was the last name of the cook from The Shining, Dick Holleran. Like, there are so many weird, weird Shining exorcism overlaps. I'm One day That's I'm going to do a mini-episode where, where I just talk about all the things The Shining and The Exorcist overlap on, because it's, it's weird. Small world stuff. Maybe not. Maybe they did it on purpose, and I'm just an idiot. So, after the death of their beloved aunt... A family started to experience strange noises, the independent moving of furniture, and even levitation whenever the dead woman's nephew would enter the room or would be in the room. The family called in their local Lutheran minister, but after the minister witnessed these events himself, he suggested calling in the Catholic Church. Interesting. (laughs) According to the story, the boy underwent a number of exorcisms, performed by Edward Hughes, a Roman Catholic priest at Georgetown University. However, when the boy got loose of his restraints and nearly slit the priest's throat with a bedspring, Hughes halted the exorcism and the family checked out of the hospital. He's like, you gotta go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, I'm not, I'm gonna tap out. I'm gonna say, uh, it's a no. Um, Good luck. I'm gonna (laughs) refer you to some people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This was in 1949. I haven't said that yet. Sorry. So the family checked out of the hospital and they moved. They thought, you know, maybe a change of scenery would help the child. But the young boy continued to suffer. Now in St. Louis, Raymond Bishop reached out to William S. Bodern, an associate at, at College Church. Together, both priests visited the boy's home where they allegedly observed a shaking bed, flying objects, and the boy speaking in a voice that was not his own. Bodern was granted permission from the archbishop to perform another exorcism. 
This exorcism took place in a, in a different hospital and, again, was very difficult. The young boy was violent, and the priest saw the saw words coming up out of his skin. Words like hell, demon, evil, not good. Throughout the, throughout the exorcism, the, the boy managed to break one of the priest's noses. But after several hours, the rite seemed to be successful, and the young boy came to himself. He went on to live a long, happy life and had no memory of his time possessed. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, it seems to be a running thing. Well, maybe it's because the exorcist is based right. off this, but right. not having memory of, I guess, trauma. You block that shit out. And that, we know that. Like, we know the human brain, when it goes through something incredibly traumatic, it will, it will like, block it out on purpose in order to give that person some chance of moving forward with their life. So it, it, it holds water for me. William Peter Blatty had the journals of Raymond J. Bishop, the person who was kind of with the young boy throughout all of his exorcisms. And so that was the source material that we, William Peter Blatty used. In that account, and I didn't leave anything out, there was no head spinning 360 degrees. There was no a child walking backwards and upside down down a staircase. So when Blatty says that 90% of his book is based on fact, I think that number is way more like 35% of his book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, you got to make it exciting. You got to sell tickets and shit, but just saying. So while this exorcism of the young boy was incredibly successful and sort of had a happy ending, many exorcisms do not end so successfully. So I also have a story of an exorcism. <laughs> Mine started in 1974. An English butcher named Michael Taylor began attending a Christian fellowship group led by a woman named Marie Robinson. Despite being completely unreligious before this, Michael became enamored with Marie Robinson and followed her example of extreme prayer and speaking in tongues. Michael and Marie would have prayer sessions together where they would make the sign of the cross over each other over and over. Sometimes for as long as eight hours, which I feel like is very excessive. <laughs> very excessive. When Michael's wife, Christine, accused Marie and Michael of having an affair, Marie put a stop to her one-on-one -on -one prayer sessions with Michael and explained to him that she would never feel anything other than a Christian brotherly love for him. After this, the family saw a severe change in Michael. His behavior became extremely erratic, confrontational, and even violent. At their wit's end, the Taylors reached out to their local church, St. Thomas, where the vicar called in other ministers experienced in deliverance in preparation to cast out the demons residing within Michael. The exorcism which occurred at St. Thomas's church was headed by Father Peter Vincent, the Anglican priest of St. Thomas's, and was aided by a Methodist clergyman, the Reverend Raymond Smith. According to Bill Ellis, an authority on folklore and the occult in contemporary culture, the exorcists believed that they had the exorcists believed that they had an in-all-night ceremony, invoked and cast out at least 40 demons, including those of incest, bestiality, blasphemy, and lewdness. <laughs> Following 24 hours of prayer, the group was exhausted and called for a break. 
And rightfully so. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot of demons. Yeah, I mean, it's up there with eight hours of doing the <laughs> fucking cross over each other. So for, what, weird. Like, can weird. you like you're just sitting in a room with a person you only know from church, and you're just doing the sign of the cross over and over and over for eight hours yeah, to accomplish sounds... what? <laughs> yeah, I man, we need to talk about that after this. But anyways. <laughs> The priests allowed Taylor to go home, although they felt that there were at least three demons. Insanity, murder, and violence were still left in them, which I feel like those are the most important to actually get out. I don't know. Just me. I think I would have probably started with murder. Like, I think, okay, we got rid of lewdness. Okay, cool. But we saw murder <laughs> in there? Like, I think get rid of murder, let lewdness sit during a nap. <laughs> like, yeah, let's bro. get murder right at the top. Or maybe you're like, hey, you stay here while we take naps. Don't <laughs> yeah, there leave. we go. Yeah, good point. Good point. Anyway, Christine took her husband home, but had asked a neighbor of theirs if the five Taylor children could spend the weekend with them as she knew she and Michael would be exhausted. This foresight from Christine likely saved the lives of their children. As soon as they arrived home, Michael stripped naked and attacked his wife with his bare hands. Guess the lutinous demon wasn't gone after all. Yikes. This is fucking terrifying. Christine was literally ripped to shreds. Both of her eyes had been plucked out and her tongue had been removed. Michael had even killed the family dog. The entire house was covered in blood. Police found Michael wandering the streets totally naked and bloody. At his trial, Michael claimed that the exorcism was to blame for the murder of his wife. If the priest had finished the job, there wouldn't there would not have been any murder. Michael was acquitted by reason of insanity and received psychiatric care for, for four years before being released back into the public. Marie Robinson, who many blame for putting these extreme ideas into Michael's head, was never charged with any crime. This is very interesting. So this case is one of the very first cases, like, legit devil made me do it. Like, the, Michael's defense was that the exorcism was unsuccessful. And it was the, it was whatever evil was still inside him was responsible for the murder. So, I'm going to talk some shit about Marie Robinson first. <laughs> yeah, I've heard this case before. I'm very interested in talking shit about her because I, I don't like it. So, Marie Robinson in the 70s, she is this cute, bubbly little blonde who... She calls herself what? just another Jesus freak. She's one of those people. Marie is related to a woman whose name I forget now, but was a woman televangelist in the 30s who founded the Foursquare Church. Foursquare churches are still popping and around today. There is a Foursquare Church near my house. So, like, Marie Robinson comes from long stock of bullshit artists. And the fact that she bore no responsibility from this incredibly brutal murder, guys. Like, I edited that. That's the edited G version of what Michael Taylor did to his wife. It's shocking. Furthermore, it's shocking to me that he got care for four years and then they just let him back out. They were just like, good luck. Yeah. Don't do it again. Promise. Pinky promise. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. I mean... He would have been. That's wild. I, I, four years of care, right? For such a brutal murder is just 
If I were his children, I'd be very upset with that. That was my first thought, too, is it's like these poor kids. Like, thank goodness, thank the universe that Christine sent the kids away. Because Michael would have killed him. He would have killed him just like that poor dog. He would have killed everything and every single creature in that house he would have killed. I do also think the Michael Taylor story is, like, unique in that it's in the UK. Like, if the Michael Taylor, if that had happened in the United States, I feel like the outcome would have been very different. Death penalty. 100 million percent. Like, it would be open. The jury would have deliberated for, like, 10 minutes. It's wild. Did he ever offend again? Do you know? Not to my knowledge. So, the UK has pretty tight uh, privacy laws. So... The very shallow digging I did, I couldn't find any more on Michael Taylor. I think he probably changed his name and moved. So our second, and I think even sadder story, is that of Annalise Mickle. Annalise was a young adult from a very conservative and very Catholic area of Germany in Bavaria. She died in 1976 after undergoing 67 Catholic exorcism rites during that year alone. Like, so in one year, she went through 67 separate exorcisms. When she died, she weighed under 70 pounds. She died from malnutrition. Like, she starved to death. It's what happened to Annalise. As such, her parents and the priests who performed the exorcisms were convicted of negligent homicide. The priests went to jail for three years, but nothing happened to her parents. Like, they were basically just given, like, a don't do that again. Wiggle of the finger. Annalise was diagnosed with epileptic psychosis, which is, a temp- which is like epilepsy specifically focused in the temporal lobe. And she had a long history of psychiatric treatment that was never effective. Now, epilepsy is a very difficult illness to live with. Living in a constant state of concern because you have no control over your body is very difficult and can lead to extreme depression. People with epilepsy are 22% more likely to commit suicide than people without epilepsy. Even today, and this was in 1976, when the only real medicine they could give you would make you comatose, essentially. Today, I think that there are more treatment options, but it's still a very difficult illness to treat and live with. For the Mickle family, who all believed that God would never punish such like a devout woman, Annalise went to church every single day of her life. She, you know, that was her whole life. So to see someone so devout, for her family, it was easier to blame the devil than it was to blame epilepsy. Like, unfortunately, their understanding of the disease was not anywhere near as in-depth as their understanding of the devil. It's a terrible, terrible shame. Like, I feel awful for Annalise Nichols, but... It was like a group psychosis. Like, I do not think Annalise Nichols was possessed by a demon. I think she had a damaged brain. And as such, she presented it in a way that she could understand. And as a person who went to Catholic Mass every single day of her life, it was much easier for her to understand the devil than epilepsy. It's a really terribly sad story. So that was in 1976. So now you're thinking, okay, dated problem. But... In 2005, there's an almost identical story. I'm going to get this name wrong. 
Mericia Irina Cornici. She was a Romanian mentally ill nun who was also killed during the rite of exorcism. And that was in 2005. So, you know, maybe, okay, surely, surely, surely in the last 20 years, we've all gotten together and we've made strides like, oh, mental illness is something we can move past. We can diagnose, we can treat, we can move past this. To that, I would say absolutely not. Just last September in Southern, last September, so September 2021 in San Jose, California, a three-year-old little girl died of asphyxia after her mother, uncle, and grandfather kept forcing her to throw up during an exorcism conducted by the grandfather, allegedly trying to force out the evil spirits. A three-year-old. Her only symptom was that she would wake up in the middle of the night crying. Okay. First and foremost, that's fucking terrible. Yeah. But why would the grandfather assert himself and think he's qualified to do something like that? Yeah. Good question. Um, The grandfather was the pastor of their church. Their church consisted of four people. Mother, uncle little girl, grandfather. That's so fucked up. It's incredibly sad. In a statement from the Catholic Church in California, quote, more people of goodwill are experiencing various forms of spiritual attack ever since the onset of the pandemic, end quote. The group responsible for performing exorcisms in Southern California have like a three-year waiting list of people who have requested exorcisms. In 2021, 2022, Southern California. (laughs) Let's just say, sounds just like wild. Because if you're actually suffering from exorcism, and you're one of the few who probably is, it's not looking good for you. Not looking good. Not looking good. Now, there's some upside, I guess. In this time of technology and social media, it's easier to find an exorcist. You can hop on YouTube and watch Father Vincent Lampert. Hell, nowadays, you can even be exercised over the phone or via Zoom. Baffled and frustrated psychologists have turned to exorcists in order to seek help with patients whose torment does not follow the traditional paths of schizophrenia or delusional disassociation and doesn't respond to any other treatment. Furthermore, possession trance disorder is now listed as a listed disorder in DSM-5 and is defined as, quote, possession trance involves replacement of the customary sense of personal identity by a new identity attributed to the influence of a spirit, power, deity, or other person, end quote. In the DSM. (laughs) That's wild. That is so wild. As it relates back to the film The Exorcist, Amy brought up another great point. When Chris goes to the psychiatric hospital to get a diagnosis on Reagan, they brought up that somnambular form possession, right? That when a person is a victim of assault or trauma, they can blame themselves for that trauma and as such develop deep feelings of guilt or shame. If we think about this in terms of of The Exorcist, Reagan is, number one, feeling a ton of guilt over her parents' divorce. Additionally, if we follow that narrative of Brooke was, a, was sexually abusing Reagan, she would also develop an intense shame 
over that abuse. So you're kind of hitting the two pillars of this possession trance disorder, which is a thing we have now that we didn't have in 1971. So I just, I do think that's interesting. And I do unfortunately think that most people who think they're possessed are actually suffering from this disorder. So for me personally, I unfortunately think most people who think they're possessed are dealing with a sort of mental illness. I don't, I'm not sure I believe in demons possessing us, but <laughs> with the world as it is today, maybe I'm being naive. I would like to say that you are. <laughs> um, so as we've mentioned a couple times, Brandon and I both grew up in the Episcopal Church. When we were kids, young, young adults, I should say, there was a rumor that our diocese had an exorcist, a, one priest whose specific job it was just to be the exorcist for the whole diocese. Brandon, would you ever be an exorcist? Yes, I would. I would wear, I would get it tattooed. I would wear spiritual <laughs> armor, like literal armor. Yeah. Um, and I would have all kinds of paraphernalia to go along with it. Like That uh, surprises merch. me. I did not think you would say yes. I mean, it would be more fun than leading a group <laughs> of church people. Like, fair, if I fair. Listen, if I got to listen to Miss Renee talk all the fucking time about her... <laughs> Kids never call it. I'm better. You better believe I'm going to exercise a fucking demon afterwards. One hundred percent. I mean, think about it like this: you get to travel. Uh, you yeah. don't have any like Sunday morning jobs. You don't have to do the church on Sunday, which is great because that's the worst part <laughs> of church. I feel like of being a priest. Um, I think I'm going to give it a soft yes. As we discussed before, I I can take on other people's emotions really easily, and so. I would really have to, A, have a great partner, but then also really take care of myself before and after these exercises, because I would worry that I would just take those demons on, and I would just become full of them. Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> it would be very Buffy-esque if I were, you know what I mean? Like, I would really play it up as I'm the chosen one, and For I would have certain. a group of friends who travel with me just to make it work. Um, uh, copyright, this is our idea. We should make a show like this. <laughs> like this is what we're kind of describing as the blot to Constantine, the DC comic about the character John Constantine, who kind of goes around solving spooky mysteries. I am for it. I'm into it. <laughs> can I'm I just be in your Scooby gang? Like, if you're the exorcist, can I just be like your helper who like researches and stuff? I'll bring snacks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, we probably couldn't bring the pets because I wouldn't want them to be around. No, there. me either. They stay somewhere else. Um, I do. I, I, I mostly want to be an extras for that hat. It's a good hat. What you get. <laughs> <laughs> I like that big black hat. <laughs> Any other final thoughts on exorcism, Brandon, or the exorcist? Hopefully everyone takes a spiritual bath, <laughs> lights some white copal. Yep. After listening to this and does not get possessed. <laughs> Maybe run some ethically sourced sage just over your phone or just do it around the apartment. Just do a whole cleanse. What can it hurt? Nothing. <laughs> we hope you guys are enjoying spooky season. Uh, we encourage you to stay tuned next week for another exciting topic. Thank you all for tuning in. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or embarrassing confessions, please send us an email at thewaybackrecap at gmail.com. That's thewaybackrecap at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at thewaybackrecappod. 
If you'd like to support the show or listen to bonus content, exclusive episodes, visit our Patreon page. Our original cover art is by Laura Strobish. Uh, remember, wherever you listen to podcasts, follow or subscribe to the Wayback Recap. If you enjoy yourself, please rate and review the show, but if that's too much. We totally get it. Tell a friend. Preferably a responsible friend who will rate and review the show. And join us next time. I'm Brandon. And I'm Patricia. And on behalf of the Wayback Recap, take, take care, care of each, each other, other y'all. y'all.